This is The Guardian. Was, wenn deine Karriere so individuell wäre wie deine Playlist? Was, wenn du Erfahrungen machen könntest, die dir wichtig sind und die dich zu einer Führungskraft werden lassen, die die Welt bewegt? Hier wächst du stetig über dich hinaus und entwickelst Fähigkeiten, mit denen du die größten Herausforderungen unserer Zeit meisterst. Eine Karriere bei EY ist so einzigartig wie du selbst. It's yours to build. Finde auch du deinen Grund, Teil von EY zu werden unter www.de.ey.com. Prime Minister has apologised twice this week. This trust said sorry for her mistakes in Parliament on Wednesday. But don't be fooled, she's not budging. Mr Speaker, I am a fighter and not a quitter. She has, however, lost her Chancellor and her entire mini-budget. And her new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, is serving up some grim forecasts. This government will take the difficult decisions necessary to ensure there is trust and confidence in our national finances. That means decisions of eye-watering difficulty. Under fire from all sides, how much longer can this trust last? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are Salma Shah, the former Conservative advisor, and The Guardian's Raphael Baer. Hello, both. Hello, Gabby. Hello. It's been a huge week with lots to analyse. But first, the one thing we've been glued to all week is, of course, the YouTube live feed of a lettuce. It's not just any lettuce, but the one the Daily Star is pitting against Liz Truss in a battle to see which one lasts longer. The lettuce is currently on day six and looking quite perky in a blonde wig and glasses, I think, this morning. Raph, have you been enjoying lettuce cam? Um, I, I can't say I've logged on directly. I've followed it remotely. I mean, I'm familiar with what a lettuce looks like and I'm familiar with what Conservative Prime Ministers look like uh, in their long decline. So I, I, I get the idea. Don't feel the need to see it. Salma, apparently it's, it's been heavily featured on French TV. It's obviously a big moment of national pride there, I think, of how we appear. It is It is uh, when tabloids come into their own, really, isn't it? It's kind of like s- s- summarising something so perfectly in the most sort of ridiculous way possible. But I know, obviously we're, we're rooting for the lettuce. I'm I'm just thrilled that we've become the like and finally funny moment at the end of all other countries' national news. That's obviously oh, a tremendous no. achievement unlocked there. So. Anyway, we should say that we are recording this episode just after Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, on a day when events are moving very fast inside uh, the Conservative Party. So uh, let's hope they haven't completely overtaken us by the end of uh, the end of this episode. But we'll be trying to pin down. What just happened on one of the most blistering weeks in politics, hopefully any of us will experience. Um, And secondly, looking at austerity season two, where will the government find the money to fill the fiscal black hole that's opened up since the budget? But just to recap a little bit uh, on the last few days, Liz Truss faced Keir Starmer in the Commons on Wednesday, the first time she's addressed the House since she sacked her Chancellor and political soulmate Kwasi Kwarteng last Friday, replacing him with her leadership rival Jeremy Hunt. 
On Monday, Hunt effectively binned her and Kwarteng's mini-budget, burying the idea of unfunded tax cuts, trussonomics as it's become known, and announced that instead he would unveil a package of tax rises and spending cuts to balance the books by October 31st. So trussonomics is dead, long live sound money apparently. With Hunt seemingly now running the show, Liz Truss is starting to look dangerously like a Prime Minister in name only, something Starmer has been quick to pick up on. At Prime Minister's questions today, she began with an apology. Mr Speaker, I have been very clear that I am... Mr Speaker, that I am sorry and that I have made mistakes. But the right thing to do in those circumstances is to make changes which I've made and to get on with the job and deliver for the British people. And Mr Speaker, we've delivered the energy price guarantee, we've helped people this winter and I will continue to do that. Salma, how did she come across to you? Was it more convincing as a a fight back perhaps than last week? I have to say her performance wasn't bad, to be honest. You know, she looked confident. She sounded fluent. You know, some of her attack lines obviously fell a bit flat, you know, when she was sort of having a go at Keir Starmer about um, strikes and unions and things like that. But nonetheless, she was quite buoyant. And I think her backbenchers were quite rowdy, you know, in, in her favour. So it, was, it wasn't it was um, as bad as I expected it to be. But, you know, at the same time, the sort of underlying issues, you know, as you've pointed out, so the the death of trussonomics, the fact that people are still, you know, thinking about who's going to replace her and how quickly that's going to happen. None of that has dissipated. So, you know, it's it's like anything in politics, you know, a single performance isn't going to change the fundamentals. Yeah, it's weird. It's often when we say it's a make or break week, that's exactly when it isn't usually, helpfully enough. Raf, what did what did you make of it? I mean, presentationally not bad, but what's she got as in terms of an argument? Yeah, I mean, I largely agree with Salma that I think it was it was sort of pugnacious uh, in a fairly ordinary PMQs kind of way, which actually I think doesn't do her any favours. I mean, perversely, it it almost just sort of you know, makes her look just about strong enough that people won't feel sorry for her anymore, but they'll still sort of despise her for all the other things she's got wrong. Uh, and whether that will buy her much uh, on the Conservative benches, I'm not sure. It might sort of prolong this sense that she's got until the the budget on the 31st of October, although you know, these things are hostages to fortune, just to say aloud. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? It still isn't clear really what she's apologising for because she's not sorry. She doesn't hasn't changed what she believes. And the fundamental thing that she would have to really accept is that the the, the the mini budget that blew up has put a permanent scar on Britain's economic credibility, which raises the cost of borrowing, which means everyone's just going to be poorer. She has made she's personally responsible for making every single person in the UK poorer. She's not going to apologise for that because yeah, obviously you have to resign if you apologise for that. So it's, it's worthless. Let's just hear what, uh, what Keir Starmer had to say about that apology since you mentioned it. Mr Speaker, those spending cuts are on the table for one reason and one reason only, because they crashed the economy. And working, working, people, working people are going to have to pay 500 quid more a month on their mortgages. And what's the Prime Minister's response to say she's sorry? What does she think people will think and say? That's all right, I don't mind financial ruin, at least she apologised. 
I mean, that's the crunch of it, isn't it? I mean, last week she promised there would be absolutely no public spending cuts. Now it's clear there will be. Last week she was criticising Labour for only advocating capping energy bills for six months while she was offering two years. Well, now six months is, is her policy too. It's all a mess, isn't it, Salma? The problem with this is because her unfunded tax cuts was such an error, she's actually taking on a lot of stuff that would have happened anyway, right? So the rate of borrowing was going to rise just not as sharply as it as it has now. The inflation had always meant that uh, they were going to have to find efficiencies in government because, you know, the last SR had only accounted for a 3% rise in inflation. And today we're reporting 10% rise in inflation. And that was always going to increase. So she was always going to have efficiencies. So I think, you know, fundamentally, while she's made big mistakes, she's actually now also copping for stuff that was going to happen anyway. It's just that she's not been able to actually say, I'm I'm managing it in a sensible way. She was also asked um, later in those exchanges by, uh, from the backbenches about fracking with Tory MPs uh, expected to be whipped this afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, to vote against their own manifesto pledge by opposing um, Labour calls for a, a ban on fracking. What do we think is going on here? Why doesn't she just give in on, you know, on this? It's an incredibly painful issue for a lot of Tory MPs. Most people think fracking's never going to happen here. Why, why is she having the fight, Rav? Oh, well, I'm... To be honest, I'm surprised that they decided to go in so hard on this vote and say it's a three line whip. It's a confidence issue. It feels like they are still striding as boldly as you can into a trap that's been deliberately set by Labour. And so my instinct is it's just it's just terrible p- political judgment. I'd be interested to know Sam's view. I mean, my sense is that partly they Downing Street feels they have to exert some control. They have to demonstrate that they can actually tell M- to Conservative MPs what to do. I think partly there is a very strong feeling that you have to have some a residue of what was the growth agenda before you had the tax cuts that you then got abandoned. So you have to do the sort of supply side bit because you definitely can't do the tax cutting bit. But it feels like really badly managed politics to me. But maybe I'm missing some 4D chess element to it. I think No, I think you're right. I think it is badly managed politics. But badly managed politics is one of the reasons why we're facing this difficulty in energy security presently. And I think one of the challenges that we have is that people are asking the question now is that why weren't we thinking about this before? You know, why weren't we investing in nuclear? Why weren't we investing in fracking and shale? And uh, the simple answer is, is because it's always politically too difficult. And it's one of those things that's kind of like off the list. Now, I don't know if this is number 10's motivation. Mm. It's a bold time, certainly, to be having a test of your authority, put it that way. There was one other thing um, that happened during Prime Minister's questions that didn't happen on the on the floor of the House, which is it emerged that Jason Stein, who's one of her um, long-serving spads and now number 10 director of political communications, um, has been suspended. Raf, can you tell us a bit about Jason and his um, operating style and uh, how important that might or might not be to her? Because he was her attack dog, really, wasn't he? Well, yeah, essentially, you know, um, this is someone who... When you're a prime minister and you're a number 10, you there aren't that many people who you can absolutely rely on to be your person on your side personally, as opposed to part of the Downing Street machine or part of the Conservative Party machine. No divided loyalty. Uh, and Jason Stein, as I understand, it really was one of those people. You know, he was her guy. And uh, that's part of the problem, because it meant that when she got into difficulty uh, and her position needed defending, uh, the recourse was a very kind of personalised way of trying to undermine her enemies. And I don't know whether he was, it was his 
lips that moved when some of the very nasty things were said about Michael Gove uh, and Sajid Javid. Um, but certainly he, his name has been associated with those briefings uh, and those people, those are powerful people in the Conservative Party who, when they're angry, can cause a lot of damage. And it's interesting, a lot of people are pointing out that Sajid Javid uh, was down to have a question in PMQs today uh, and that he was going to express his rage at what had, you know, how he had been described uh, over the weekend, I believe, uh, as sort of, yeah, I think he, shit was the word that was used about him. Um, Are we allowed to say that? I'm sure we're allowed to say that. <laughs> I just did. <laughs> but anyway, he didn't like it and he was going to do something about it in PMQs. Uh, and it would appear that uh, Jason uh, Stein's scalp is the one that has been removed uh, to buy him off. If only we had someone in the room at this point who'd ever worked for Sajid Javid. Oh, Salma! <laughs> God. So uh, just, to, just to be really upfront, I haven't spoken to him about this, so I don't know if this is true and that these are the machinations that happen behind the scenes. Uh, so just from my experience, I'm not sure he would have used Prime Minister's questions to talk about himself in that way. Uh, and I certainly think that his advice, if he's getting good advice, which I'm sure he is. Not as good uh, as he used been... to, clearly, Sam. No, not as good uh, as you he know. used to. He, he peaked. He peaked when I left, obviously. Um, but I, I can't imagine he would waste a question at Prime Minister's questions to talk about himself. I do think, though, that it is sort of silly to have an attack dog going out and attacking people when you are in such a vulnerable position actually an advisor in that sense has to say okay we need to dial this down actually we need friends at the moment so the last thing I'm going to do is even if we're being attacked we've got to try and rise above it you know I've been there on the inside when you know especially the guardian sort of calling you and telling you that actually your policies are horrible and hateful as you know it was quite often the case and challenging you on things and it's hard to keep a level head and it's hard to kind of like keep your emotions under control because there are people at the end of the day but ultimately one of the reasons power and making decisions is so hard is that's exactly what you need to do you have to stay calm and not compromise your position any further with, you know, poor use of language or bad briefing. Now, again, let's just point out, we don't know that any of this is true. Uh, you know, from what I've seen on reports, Jason is uh, has been suspended pending an, an investigation. investigation. Yeah. So, you know, that needs to sort of run its course. But nonetheless, there has been some briefing from Number 10. We don't know who's responsible for it, but it hasn't been sensible in order to dial down um, the aggression and animosity that's being felt towards the Prime Minister at the moment. Let's talk for a minute about what what it is that um, Liz Truss's attack dogs might be um, trying to protect her against, because obviously this has been a fantastic week in the Commons for plotting, scheming, whispering in corners and coming up with um, unconvincing sounding um, plans by which the Prime Minister could be replaced. I mean, the feeling I got yesterday was that things seemed to have calmed down a bit, if only because MPs could not agree on any possible sort of strategy for replacing her that that would be accepted. But this morning, it suddenly feels as if, you know, the rumours are gathering pace again. Salma, what are you, I mean, what do you think is going to happen to her ultimately? Can she survive? And if so, for how long? And what mechanism gets her out? Like, ultimately, her authority is so shot and the polls are so bad, I don't think that she can credibly stay in office for a long period of time. What is the Conservative Party thinking? They can't have another drawn out, protracted uh, leadership contests. 
So there is the possibility of a coronation that's decided amongst MPs and then perhaps an, an, uh, an offer is presented to the king. But the problem with that is that you can't actually have that uh, mechanism until there is agreement that there is one person that can build a parliamentary coalition. And who is that person, I think, is the question at the moment. And I don't think, you know, there are enough people who've sort of ruled themselves out of being the top person in order to coalesce around an individual. So you've potentially got Rishi Sunak back in the frame. You've got Penny Mordaunt back in the frame. You know, I saw Suella Braverman sort of making some impassioned sort of strange um, you know, rhetorical flourishes at the dispatch box yesterday. Oh, about the, the tofu-eating Guardian-reading woke, woke yeah. arati. Mm. Great yeah. to see them I making mean, reappearance. I don't mind a tofu, and I, and I will confess as a Tory, I do sometimes read the Guardian, but I quite like the public order bill. Uh, so I don't know if she was talking about me or not. Um, but yeah, the, the reality is that, that that is making that coronation process a bit messy. Um, but I can't see any other way then you know the men in grey suits as they're known or otherwise known as Sir Graham Brady um, you know going and tell them, telling the Prime Minister it's over what other mechanism there would be Yeah we have reports this morning um, that uh, that Graham Brady or the chair of the 1922 committee already has possibly uh, 52 letters of no confidence in or has already reached the threshold that would normally trigger a, a leadership contest although of course as the rules stand at the moment she, she can't face a contest for a year those rules could always of course be changed um but the suggestion is that 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 might require perhaps half the parliamentary party demanding a change raf where do you think all this is is leading are we just going to carry on going around in circles or do you think this is going to resolve relatively quickly i think as we've said on this podcast before you know whenever people are saying things can't possibly go on like this that they they can and, and they do um i do think that 31st of october date is very important uh you know the budget um the, the sense that yeah, the, 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 one of the things that sort of responsible, serious conservatives are, are trying to balance is the sense of you, know, you having Jeremy Hunt now in the Treasury talking about sound money, talking about fiscal responsibility does seem to have calmed the bond yield and the sterling slide. And so they won't really want to disturb that any more than they have to. The, the question is whether changing the prime minister makes that better or worse. Um, uh, certainly sort of having a horrible, messy, half-decapitation that's where the job isn't finished and it's all really gruesome is not going to help. So I, I think that sounds right that, you know, the, the theory that you just all coalesce around a, a, a sort of, as it were, a, a grown-up who then just becomes prime minister, uh, obviously that's what they, that would be their ideal scenario. But there are just way more people who think they could be prime minister uh, and not enough people who will happily stand aside to let someone else do the job. What about Jeremy Hunt? I mean, it does feel to me there's been a lot of speculation about whether Jeremy Hunt would, you know, is is basically aiming for another run at the Prime Minister by, by the back door. It doesn't feel, talking to MPs close to him, that doesn't feel quite right to me. I feel like if, if you wanted to be Prime Minister, the last thing you would do would be making yourself as horrendously unpopular as Jeremy Hunt is going to do for the next two weeks. Everyone's going to hate him by the time he's finished. I've always thought that Jeremy Hunt is actually is actually really a, he's a good person and you know and as far as politicians you can describe them as having integrity I would say that about Jeremy Hunt and you know the things that he's he's going to have to do are just going to be so unpopular um I sort of think that you know good on him for coming back and saying you know what I'm going to take it on the chin if this is my last big job in politics I'm going to do whatever it takes to stabilize the economy up to a point, <laughs> I, mean, I would agree with that, because also 
they all at some stage have that you know it's like that the, the, you know, remember the commitments that film you know where he's sort of lies in the bath imagining he's having the interview with Terry Wogan talking about how tremendously successful he's been in the music industry you know there's they all at some stage imagine themselves doing that thing I'm standing at the steps of Downing Street what do I say well it appears you've begged me to be your prime minister and I'm just going to have to <laughs> I, I, I refuse to believe there isn't five at least five to 95 percent of him that thinks well if they really asked me to do it then obviously I would have it'd be my duty to do it <laughs> the real wild card is obviously we've got some members calling for the return of Boris Johnson does anyone in this room think that's anything other than a bonkers idea bonkers idea bonkers idea yeah I, I don't think I don't think it's a sensible idea at all but that doesn't mean that it's not, <laughs> it's not gonna happen <laughs> it's not gonna happen <laughs> okay let's pause there for a minute coming up next we'll be looking at the government's next big headache which is where uh, the cuts that Jeremy Hunt has to find will fall I'm Grace Dent and I'm back Friends, it's time for your fourth helping of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me with more celebrity guests like Don O'Porter, Graham Norton and Mallory Blackman as we throw the fridge doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. You'll notice I'm talking a lot. That's because I'm, I'm hoping somewhere along the way I don't have to eat it. <laughs> the, the level of devilment in your face. Comfort Eating returns on the 18th of October with new episodes released every Tuesday. Comfort Eating with me, Grace Dent, is supported by Ocado. Okay, welcome back. Amid all the drama of the last week, we've almost forgotten about the background threat of rising inflation. But on Wednesday morning, the Office of National Statistics confirmed it had hit 10.1%, the highest in 40 years, driven by soaring food prices. Liz Truss's universal cap on energy bills was meant to give us a bit of welcome relief from inflation, but now that's going to end in April. After that, only the more vulnerable will be supported. And again, that pushes inflation up. The higher inflation goes the more likely interest rates and so mortgage rates are going to rise. That's the harsh backdrop against which Jeremy Hunt now has to make even tougher decisions. And he started off by saying absolutely nothing was off the table. Here he is on Channel 4 News on Tuesday speaking to Christian Guru Murphy. It's very, very frightening for people and you've got nothing you know, reassuring to say. I don't think I do. Um, I think that's a fair comment. But I think the thing that is most terrifying of all when you face very grave challenges, and let's, let's be clear. Um, you know, I've been very honest that there were some mistakes in the mini-budget, but it isn't just the mini-budget. There actually is a small part of much broader instabilities caused by the war in Ukraine, uh, the, the backlog from COVID, and so on. These are very serious times for all countries around the world, and the worst thing any government can do is not be completely honest and transparent about the scale of the challenges. It's really unusual to hear a chancellor just say in response to someone saying this is going to be awful isn't it just basically say yes it is and I was really I was really struck by that there's been speculation that he could cut overseas aid there was speculation that he could even ditch the triple lock which guarantees pensions rise by whichever of earnings inflation or 2.5 percent is higher speculation he could delay the introduction of a cap on social care costs meant to stop people having to sell their houses 
But the Prime Minister seemed to rule quite a few things out at Prime Minister's questions, didn't she, Raf? Particularly on the, the triple lock. Yeah, she was unequivocal on that. I mean, the, the question was asked and then presumably uh, as a view to trying to make her equivocate or trap her into something. And she just sort of, you know, more or less flatly contradicted at least the inference of what Jeremy Hunt and James Cleverly Wednesday morning uh, had said. And it's again, it's unclear whether that is because she was asserting her own prime ministerial authority over Jeremy Hunt, say that I will know I'm the person who gets to decide whether or not this is a policy, whether the fact that the Daily Express had sort of threatened her over it. And she thought if you've lost the Express, that really is all over for, for Liz Truss. Uh, you know, or just that, there, I mean, it, it com- confirms this sense that there just is no economic strategy uh, between numbers 10 and 11 Downing Street. It's easy enough for Jeremy Hunt to sound portentous and try and claim a sort of sobriety dividend by saying this is going to be very hard. But until he says exactly who's going to pay and quite how hard it is, actually, he he isn't really grappling with the problem. I think what's interesting about this is that um, it is actually it's less about the tension between 10 and 11, I think, here. It is actually the tension between economics and politics. You can suggest something, but will people wear it, I think is the reality. And um, when that triple lock change was sort of in the ether for a few days ago, you know, very quickly you had Tory MPs coming out on Twitter saying, I will not vote for this. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to go away because it's a catch-22, isn't it, the politics and the economics? Because um, if the economy gets worse and the markets aren't satisfied that you have been serious about your deficit reduction plan, then the politics gets even worse. And if people are already saying the politics is bad, then how do you make those economic decisions that ultimately will satisfy the market, however difficult the result might be? The relationship tension between Liz and Jeremy, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really exist because it's an emergency situation. You know, Jeremy is not the person that she would have had with with all the options as her chancellor. So that's just a given. Um the the tension really is in the substance. But he is, I agree, so I agree with that, but he is also unsackable uh, and he's presenting himself as this kind of Mario Draghi technocrat coming to fix the mess thing. She is sackable <laughs> and in a very vulnerable position. So there is, a, I agree with you, but there is a political but, structural but don't, thing But there, don't forget it? that like ultimately they are all, all of them, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, uh, are, are now living day to day dependent on kind of like these very jittery backbenchers. And ultimately, you know, Everybody is worried about whether they're going to retain their seat at the next election. And they and don't forget, these are very new people to Parliament. You had 2017 move out. You had 2019 move out. Right. So you don't have people who've been there for a long time and seen any of these cycles before. And that's true of the apparatchik world as well. You know, uh, it's not like people like me who were there for like 10 years and kind of like have some vague memory of things that have gone before. So this is kind of, this is why it's all become so much more difficult because these tiny things in the structure really have an impact on your ability to govern. You just wonder if there's anything big left for Hunt to cut for which he could get a parliamentary majority. I mean, on the other side of the equation, you already have MPs saying they wouldn't vote for benefits not being uprated in line with earnings, for example. I mean, do we both, do we all think that that is now definitely got to happen? Hunt says his guiding principle is compassionate conservatism, which seems to indicate that that benefits have to go up in line with inflation. Yeah, there are a couple more questions on that and Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday and the Prime Minister again hedged it. Clearly they are worried about that. But then the alternative is raising taxes uh, and, you know, 
she was very clear that that's obviously not something she But then he's do. been clear it's something um, he might. I mean, he's talking yeah, about windfall then, taxes, money tax on banks, you know. That, that's way. That's what you have to do if you want to raise money without cutting spending. I mean, you have to do both at the moment. But the, I mean, you're, you're right. Well, I thought one of the most revealing things that that um, Jeremy Hunt said in that statement on Monday, when he, he the first thing he said, pretty much was, you know, we are the kind of country that pays our debts and honors honors our commitments. I can't remember how he phrased it, but that, that's the formulation. This is the kind of Britain that we are was a real assertion of exactly what you say, Gabby, which is like, could we go back to being one of the grown-up G7 countries? Could we be like more like Germany and less like Greece in 2010? That's the anxiety. Um, and of course, yeah, and part of the elephant in the room there is obviously, well, Brexit was one of the things that downgraded us from sensible country to not so sensible country, both in the eyes of the financial markets and many uh, other countries around the world. But clearly, you're not going to get Jeremy Hunt or any conservative frontline politician to admit to that anytime soon. I just wonder as well whether he how he puts together a package that gets through cabinet because you've already got Ben Wallace indicating that he might resign if he doesn't get his 3% rise in the defense budget and obviously a very good case for that being made in Ukraine at the moment. I don't how how does cabinet react to being told what to do by Jeremy Hunt do you think Salma? And no one you know anyone who signed up to be in Liz Truss's cabinet did not did not sign up for what they're now you know presenting to the public do they accept his authority what happens if he wants cuts and you appeal over his head to the prime minister you know there has to be an acceptance that this is a really dire situation and that the chancellor's come in now to kind of remedy and calm the situation and so it is not in the rest of the cabinet's interest to try and destabilize that unless they're making a really sort of difficult case let's give them the benefit of the doubt because when they were presented with the mini budget on the quasi quarting, they wouldn't have known the details because most of the cabinet doesn't get to know the details of a tax and spend uh, change in a mini budget. I wouldn't necessarily just assume that the cabinet is kind of was always full square behind, uh, you know, Liz's economic vision. She won. She came in with this big expensive energy package i think a lot of people probably expected her to go a little bit slower on the tax and are probably quite relieved that jeremy's in there i would hope that that quite generous appraisal of the way the cabinet or the kind of the maturity that the cabinet will bring to this is true but uh i, I do worry first of all I mean, Jeremy Hunt came last in the ballot of Conservative MPs this summer when he ran for leadership. So, you know, quite aside from you know, whether or not he, ideologically he would have been for a candidate, he clearly doesn't have that many friends in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. Uh, so that's a problem. And the fact that he is being treated as this kind of veteran grey beard, called in from exile, safe pair of hands, steady figure... Um, is you know a bit of a function of the very I think excellent point that Salma made a moment ago about there not being as much institutional memory in Parliament and in politics uh, because of you know, the churn in general elections and the big 2019 win. Um, actually, does he really have that gravitas and authority for just being having been around a bit longer than everyone else? Is he also seen as a bit of a kind of Osborne Knight Remainer from the old establishment, the old orthodoxy? That that stuff hasn't gone away from the Conservative Party. It was utterly refuted by financial markets, but psychologically, a lot of the Conservative Party is still kind of in that space. How on earth, Samuel, does the Conservative Party? recover from this i mean it's, it's going to take a generation to be forgiven for doing this much economic damage isn't it 
I yes, I, you know there are a lot of angry people out there, and you, things are going to get economically worse uh, for a lot of people. I mean, you know, and it's not just the most vulnerable in society. You know, where when the squeeze middle starts being more squeezed, you really have a problem for the, for the Conservative Party. They they have not yet found a way to intellectually rationalise the position the Conservatives have taken. Because for years, under David and George, you had this kind of occupation of the centre ground, which really offended the right-wingers. And then you had, you know, there's sort of hard right on Brexit, sort of constantly nibbling away at the Conservative Party. And then you had Boris Johnson who came in and sort of somehow occupied the entirety of that ground. But none of it had any kind of narrative or rationalisation. And I think at some point, you know, there will be sounder heads that step back from this and say, you know, what is conservatism in the world these days? Because it's not just the Conservative Party here. I think centre-right parties across the world are really asking themselves the question is, what are we for now? Yeah, I think Boris Johnson has a lot to answer for in, in that respect, just to, conserv- to the Conservative Party. I mean, obviously, he's a hero to many stories, but I don't think they understand how parasitic that relationship was. It was about him and his ego. And he achieved something remarkable, as someone just said, you know, of a whole creating that Brexit coalition. But actually, I mean, I'm not wanting to get too wonkish about it, but there is quite a lot of academic evidence that your kind of nationalist populist segment of people, what they believe is 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 so far removed from what your traditional liberal centre-right conservatives actually believe. You know, the, 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 they can be made to agree on things like Brexit or, or Trump in some cases in the US, but actually that alliance is incredibly flimsy. And if you lose the glue, the charismatic glue of someone like Boris Johnson, the extent to which that unravels, as we're seeing now, I think, is it can be quite spectacular. Back to the old truism then in some ways that elections are always won on lost on centre ground and it's whoever finds it first. Thank you so much, both of you. It's been a really helpful episode. Thank you for your insights. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebdahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 